Out of the ship immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, how we read these words, and it reminds us of the deplorable condition unto which every sinner is born into this world. Oh God, I pray that you'd help me this morning to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. I pray that, Lord, you'd revive and refresh our love for the gospel. For, Lord, you've called us to go out into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And, Lord, it's our love and desire for the gospel in our own lives that enables us to preach it with fervency and love and anticipation and excitement. Lord, I pray that, Father, you would stir mightily in our midst this morning. Lord, help us to be reminded from that which you've saved us from and to that which you've saved us to. Lord, may be forever grateful and indebted to you. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy and your love in Christ Jesus. For we ask these things for his name's sake alone. Amen and amen. You know, when you read this passage of Scripture, it reminds me that the Scriptures paint no pleasant picture of the sinfulness of man nor of the depth of depravity into which man by sin has fallen. Isaiah 64, 6 says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Job declared how much more abominable and filthy is man which drinketh iniquity like water. Paul declared in Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. The psalmist said in Psalm 10, the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. Beloved, what a description of the sinfulness of man. A description which once was above our heads. Description which once described us as sinners without Christ, without God, without hope in the world. And though it is sinful man who will not seek after God, but continually sin unrestrained against him, it is that same offended God who would graciously send his only begotten Son into the world that he would seek and save that which was lost. When I consider the life that I once lived without Christ, and I read these passages of Scripture. Beloved, these are things that describe me at one time as a sinner left undone without Christ. 
And yet God would send His own Son into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to seek, the Bible says. Luke 19.10, the Lord said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. To seek implies to go on in search of, in quest of. Now listen to this description and let it affect your hearts and minds as God's elect of how Christ sought us out in seeking to save our souls. Seek implies to go and search or quest of. it To search for by going from place to place. That's what seek is. When I think about that word seek, I also think about the Glorious gospel of God's divine election. For if all men were to be saved, why must he seek from place to place? He came to seek. There was a purpose, a divine purpose in his seeking. In his seeking, it wasn't destiny or fate or chance. There was a divine purpose, a divine goal for him seeking to believe and understand and contemplate that Christ would seek out me. That of all men in the world, like he did here, as we'll see in a few minutes, that he would pass by a multitude to seek me. That he would call me out of sin and darkness and depravity unto himself. That he would seek me that the God of all eternity that possesses all things, that knows all things, would send his son to seek out me. He came to seek and to save, not perchance. He came to seek and to save. Not perchance, but definitely and certainly. He came with a purpose. He came with a goal. One that would not be thwarted. One that would not be hindered. One that would not be compromised. He came to do something. A purpose. To fulfill that purpose. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Can you see yourself applying your own salvation to these rich passages of Scripture that Christ would come and seek and to save you which were lost? How fitting it is, even in His birth, when the Scripture says, And thou shalt call His name Jesus. Why? For He shall, not maybe, not possibly, He shall save His people from their sins. Oh, I'm telling you, there's great comfort in the doctrine of divine election. What a comfort it is. I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's not a doctrine that makes us prideful or arrogant, but it's a doctrine which should greatly humble us. And it's in this fifth chapter of the Gospel of Mark that this divine truth is so gloriously and wonderfully displayed. And that through the lives of three distinct people whose heartaches and sorrows were far beyond the help and aid of any man. God had providentially brought each one of these individuals to the end of themselves. 
to a place where no man could help them. Human help and aid was impossible. And isn't that what God did with us when He called us unto Himself? He brought us to a point to where all human aid was impossible. We had only one place to look. We had only one person to look unto, and that was Christ. I'm getting ahead of myself, but God so often uses tragedy in people's lives to direct their hearts and intentions to His divine calling. To break their affections away from anything worldly and anything in of themselves that they might be drawn to Him. God's election, God's divine calling is different in each and every one of us, but it's a divine calling with a purpose and a goal which will not be thwarted by man. We have a man possessed not of one but many devils. Again, I'm getting ahead of myself. He says, because they're a legion. A legion was 6,000, according to Roman soldiers. 6,000. A man possessed not of one, but many devils who, whom man had deserted to the tombs. Mankind had left him, deserted him to the tombs, to the realm of the dead, where it says he was always night and day crying and cutting himself with stones. This man was at the end of himself. No human aid possible, even though they attempted. You have a woman which had an issue of blood 12 years. 12 years. Who the Bible says suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had. She came to the end of herself. God providentially brought her to the end of herself. Yet the Bible says at that moment she was nothing but bettered, but even rather grew worse. And then at last we have a loving father whose only daughter lieth at the point of death, over which no man hath power. Ecclesiastes 8.8 8 says no man hath power over the hour of death, in which while Christ lingered, she dies, leaving her loving father with the most agonizing sorrow and heartache, for nothing is more devastating and the loss of a child. God had probably providentially brought them all to the end of themselves. That's what God does generally in every work of salvation. He brings us to the end of ourselves. Oh, how sin has wrought the greatest havoc and pain and torment upon all mankind. It's no respecter of persons, but has cast all mankind into the greatest abyss of darkness and devastation. Yet for these three people who sat in darkness, who sat in the region and shadow of death, light springs up upon their lives. And it's amazing that you have this whole chapter and you have a multitude of people involved in every one of these instances. There's only, there's only three. There's only three who's drawn by divine grace. You say you do not believe in divine election. You do not know your scriptures. 
God has his people in every realm, in every country, and he brings them out of every sort of trial and heartache and trouble. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Let us then this morning begin to examine the first person under whom the light sprung up in the shadow of death, one which is very unique from the other two persons. This first one is very unique from the other two. Jairus and the woman sought out Christ. This first man, it was impossible for him to seek out Christ. So Christ sought him. And this first man clearly reveals how the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. But to better understand the more and more fully appreciate the rich mercy and grace of Christ delivering this demon-possessed man, I wish to, for us to humbly consider the events leading up to Christ coming to the country of Gadarenes. The events leading up to it are very important. Okay. First of all, I want you to notice something and listen very closely because I pray that you would relate this to your own salvation. I did, and I was tremendously encouraged and excited again for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What he all did in seeking me for salvation or to bring to salvation. First of all, I want you to notice the events leading up to this situation. Christ, in chapter 4, was accompanied or he was in the, the fellowship of the surroundings of a whole multitude, but he left that multitude. Look over in chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, Mark, verse 1, And he began again to teach by the seaside. This is probably up by Capernaum, if I understand right. And there was gathered unto him a great multitude so that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea, and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. I want you to notice, first of all, that Christ goes from chapter 4, from a whole multitude of people, Christ will travel a great distance merely for this one man who's possessed by many devils. Did he not do the same thing for the Samaritan woman? I must needs go through Samaria. But he would leave a multitude. And in chapter 4, we see him teaching many things. Yet we see no true conversions. We see no convictions. We see nothing great of itself. But Christ would leave that multitude to travel a great distance because they had to go over the Sea of Galilee to get to the country of the Gadarenes. He would leave the multitude for one man possessed of many devils. That began to make me think and ponder. Surely there were some amongst the whole multitude who were in dire need of help or healing. There's a, there's a multitude of people that Christ was teaching. A multitude who were probably, many were probably sick and many of them were probably in dire need of Christ and yet Christ leaves that multitude to take a long-distance trip across the Sea of Galilee through a raging storm, threatening the lives of His disciples for this one man. 
Have you ever considered your salvation in that aspect? Have you ever asked the question, which I'm sure we all have, why me? Why me? If I believe in divine election and I believe that all men are sinners, and I believe that not all will be saved, and I believe in the doctrine of divine election, if I believe in that, I come to the question and say, God, why me? Why would you pass by so many people and that you would come to me and open up my eyes and deliver me from my sins while you leave so many yet in their sins? This was a divine truth that bewildered John Newton. And one reason why he wrote Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. A wicked, evil man he was, a slave trader. He could not understand why God's amazing grace would be revealed to him. Why do people speak of divine election in such a spirit of pride and arrogance? when it should create the greatest humility and adoration in the hearts of God's children, that he would pass by so many and come to me. This man could never have gone to Christ. Jairus heard of Christ, and he comes to him seeking help. The woman with the blood issue heard of Christ. She heard of the previous chapters of people just merely touching his garment and being healed. So she came to Christ. Yes, it was God's providence that drew them. But here is a man who is incapable, possessed by a legion of devils, deserted by mankind, left in the tombs to live amongst the dead, cutting himself the stones, crying all day and all night. And Christ would come to him. Christ goes to the lowest parts of the earth to the most depraved and wicked of all sinners. I've come, he said, to call sinners to repentance, not the righteous. Christ would lead or leave the multitude, leading his disciples a far distance and through a life-threatening storm simply to reach one man possessed of a legion of devils. What an amazing, what an amazing display of grace and mercy and love. He could have went anywhere in that region. I looked at the map while I was doing my studying where everything was, and he could have went anywhere in that region. In fact, he did a lot of miracles in Capernaum. He could have went anywhere. Bethsaida, he could have went anywhere. But no, he went to this one country side this one man that mankind had forgotten and deserted yet not God man possessed not by one but many demons oh Ezekiel 34 16 says I will seek that which was lost I will bring again that which was driven away I will bind up that which was broken, and I will strengthen that which was sick. Beloved, that's grace. That's unmerited grace. Could there be a greater display and evidence of divine election 
in this chapter 5 of the Gospel of Mark, when Christ would go such a far distance to seek out one man. Matthew 22, our Lord said, many are called, but what? You are chosen. Chapter 4, many are called. Chapter 5, few are chosen. So we're in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, 37. Amazing chapter. Chapter begins with a couple hundred disciples. By the end of chapter 6, he's got 12, and one of them is a demon. And it all had to do with divine election, if you read the chapter right. Look at John chapter 6, verse 37. Listen to what he says here. And all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. No question. No circumstances. And him that cometh to me, I will in no eyes cast out. For I came down from heaven. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did stand. I came down from heaven. I could sit there for a while and just meditate upon that one phrase. He didn't just come down from the blue heavens or the stars. He came down from the heavens, the heaven of heavens. I came down from the very presence of God the Father being God manifest in flesh. I came down from heaven. I came a far distance. He came down. From heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which he hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, that's twice he says that, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. I should lose nothing. All that the Father has sent me. Don't you love that? Verse 37, all that the Father giveth me. Verse 39, and this is the Father's will which has sent me, that all which he hath given me. See there? Given me. Have you ever considered yourself as divine gift of God to his Son? To contemplate that God the Father from the beginning of creation would call us unto himself and fulfill that in Christ, bringing us unto him. What an amazing truth. What an amazing reality which should greatly humble us as God's children. As a matter of fact, it, it's profound. It's almost too much for our finite understanding. And yet faith finds great confidence and hope and encouragement in the fact that the Father sent me or hath given me unto His Son. And His Son came to seek that which was the Father's. It's amazing. Beloved, the doctrine of divine election when humbly believed will never, listen to me, will never fill our hearts with pride and arrogance. It shouldn't. If it has, we haven't received it right. We're not prideful when we believe in the doctrine of divine election? 
We're not special or privileged people above others, except the fact that God has called us unto himself, but it does not make us privileged or better. We were sinners like everyone else, and we can go to Ephesians chapter 2 to read that. You hath he quickened who were before time, past times, walked according to this course of the world, according to him who possessed the world, or according to Satan, and the lust of your flesh. But it should fill our hearts with humble adoration and praise for such unmerited mercy and grace. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. I'm constrained to be. Another divine lesson which I believe we learned from these previous events in Mark chapter 5 or Mark chapter 4 <clears throat> is it the great storm of wind and waves which met them as they traveled toward this country there's a purpose for everything God does I hope and pray that we understand that God doesn't do anything for nothing there was a purpose why Christ led his disciples across the sea and there's a purpose why Christ allowed the storm which was life-threatening according to Scripture. It said the water filled the boat. There was a purpose for Christ allowing that before they showed up in the country of the Gadarenes. And I, I don't want to stretch Scripture to make it say something it doesn't, which a lot of preachers are guilty of doing. I, I don't want to do that. But I believe the purpose for the storm was not only for the disciples, as we'll see in a few minutes, but I, I believe with all my heart the purpose is also to teach us something about the gospel as well. When we go out to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must never forget that sometimes there's great opposition. There was a great storm that came up. In taking the gospel unto all creatures, often our efforts to preach the gospel... We must be prepared for great opposition and affliction. It wasn't easy. The, li the lives of the disciples were threatened. Now, Christ was in the boat. He was asleep. He was with them. But their lives were threatened. It's laborers whom Christ would have us pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send forth. It's laborers. Sometimes in our efforts of preaching the gospel, we must face great opposition. Especially in this day and age in which we live. Paul would exhort Timothy to be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. Be partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. That's what Paul told Timothy. It's amazing. He says partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. There's afflictions that come with the gospel. And here Christ is on his way to cast out demons from a man who has a legion of devils. And on that route they face a great storm. One which is life-threatening to his disciples, I believe, illustrates that when we go out with the gospel, we must expect opposition. Maybe not every time, but sometimes we shall face great oppositions in our attempts to preach the gospel unto all creatures. It's labors. The Lord didn't use that word flippantly. It's labors. It's hard work. Send out those who will work hard and diligently. Not give up so easy.
Paul told Timothy also to watch in all things, endure afflictions, do the work, do the work of an evangelist. The work of an evangelist. What does it mean the work? It takes work to evangelize. Many churches who believe in the doctrines of grace have gotten lazy and slothful and indifferent. I'm getting ahead of myself, but they hide behind the sovereignty of God and just say, well, God's going to call His elect. Nothing we can do about it. He's going to fulfill. All those whom Christ has come to save, He'll save. And so we just sit back indifferently, apathetic to the souls of men, and we just let God save them. That isn't what God has told us to do. That's not how God's ordained us to go out and preach the gospel and calling His elect. He's called us to go out into the highways and byways and the hedges and compel them to come in. That's what God Himself has ordained for us to do in His calling, His election. His elect out is for us to go out and preach the gospel. Yet we do that in a world which lieth in wickedness. We must face much opposition and affliction. Just as Paul did and Timothy did, just as our Lord did, just as John the Baptist did, just as all faithful believers of Christ throughout every generation faced great opposition when they went out into the world to preach the gospel. I fear too many use the doctrine of divine election to be lazy and slothful in their efforts to preach the gospel to every creature. They hide, like I said before, behind God's sovereignty as an excuse for their slothfulness and indifference in preaching the gospel. Beloved, it is our earnest desire and prayer, I believe, over the last few weeks from what I've heard, is that we desire to go out and evangelize to preach the gospel to tell others of Christ. Beloved, I'm telling you now, it takes great effort to do that. And it will not come without great opposition or affliction. It takes work to evangelize. Do you know that? Oh, as soon as people who, many people who adhere to the doctrines of grace hear that word, they become frightened and afraid and scared and tremble and Oh, don't put works in. No, it takes a lot of work to evangelize. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of labor to evangelize. And it will be met with great afflictions and great opposition from the world, from Satan and from sinners who despise and reject and hate God. It's not an easy task. We have much need of divine power and grace. They're afraid that they might offend God's divine election somehow. They whisper the gospel within the confines of their own walls. They whisper the gospel within the confines of their own walls. But Christ declared, what I tell you in darkness, that speak you in light, what you hear in the ear, that preach upon the housetops. You put your light on a hill. Didn't you say that? So that all men could see it? Unto the highways and hedges we must go and compel them to come into his house. The Lord said. Paul said it himself in First Corinthians nine, and oh I hear even in the back of my mind many now who adhere to the doctrines of grace coming to redefine what Paul said. But Paul said this. Paul says, I made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Paul, what are you doing? You think you have the power? Save some? Paul says, no. Listen to what I'm saying. I have made I have made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake that I might be partaker thereof with you. 1 Corinthians 9, 20, 
Have you ever read the account of the Apostle Paul? What he suffered in preaching the gospel? Do you know the history of the disciples? What they suffered for preaching the gospel? The gospel is truly a hated message in this world which lieth in sin. Therefore, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of sound mind. Why? That we might go out and preach the gospel. No, the storm is an illustration of in our efforts to preach the gospel, we're going to meet oftentimes great opposition and affliction. It's going to happen. You ever hear, I know you have, heard of the story of the Moravian Brethren in 1732? From Germany, I believe, as a matter of fact. They, they wanted to evangelize slaves on a certain island, British island somewhere. And people told them they couldn't go there. It's impossible. They said, well, we'll become citizens then of that island. We'll become slaves. We'll enter into slavery so that we can preach the gospel. Many people thought they were crazy. They did. They entered into slavery. They submitted themselves. They entered themselves into slavery. They gave themselves unto slavery so they could preach the gospel to the black slaves on this distinct island. And you know, when their ship was departing, they called out to their loved ones on the shore. Do you remember that phrase? I don't know if you heard the story. But they called out to their loved ones on the shore. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. What is the reward of his suffering? The salvation of his elect. One cannot but read the Gospels as well as the entire New Testament, the book of Acts, and see how God's people suffered great persecution for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It wasn't for the faint-hearted or the slothful or the weak, but for the diligent, those who are ready to lay their lives down for the sakes of the gospel. And so I believe this is why we have God providentially bringing a storm up on the sea as he's traveling to this place of one man possessed of devils. And I believe that's in light and in line with Scripture, not stretching it to say something it doesn't. I'm sure we can apply many other things to that. But there's another thing, which I won't go into, but I will leave for your thoughts before we close out and next time I want to get into how he deals with this demon possessed man and, and, and I really do covet your prayers because this, we're dealing with a subject which many Christians today ignore and that is demonic things there is an adversary and many Christians act as though there's not one let me tell you there's one and he's he's real he's powerful not as powerful as Christ, 
Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But there is demonic possession. There is demonic things going on in the world that would confound us and blow our minds. If God were to open our hearts and our minds to see the spiritual warfare, I believe it would blow our minds mentally. So many Christians live as though there's not an adversary. There is such an adversary. And I believe that's what Christ would have us understand in this legion. One man's possessed by a legion, the devil, a couple of thousand. I get ahead of myself, but there was 2,000 pigs. It tells me there are at least 2,000 demons in this guy. 2,000. But that for a later discussion. One last lesson I want to leave with you. Because I believe these previous events are important for us understanding chapter 5. One last lesson. And it concerns the disciples. Why would the Lord allow the disciples to go through this storm before arriving to this island of this man possessed of devils? It's worth our meditation. Look what happens in the end of chapter 4 after the Lord calms the storm. Look in verse 40. This is what he did after he calmed the storm. He said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Listen to me. Why, why would he want them to go through this storm but for the strengthening of their faith? But he says, why do you have no faith? Now listen to the response in verse 41. And they feared exceedingly. Exceedingly. And said one to another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They feared exceedingly. I believe the Lord was setting their hearts for the moment when he'd land on this island and they'd see this man possessed of a legion of devils. They were still bewildered by what Christ did on the sea. But they hadn't seen nothing of what Christ is able to do. It's not the calming of the waves and the winds. It's the salvation of a soul which Christ would have them contemplate. People look for miracles. And Christ said, no, there's a greater work I'm about. You've seen me calm the winds and the waves. That's nothing. Watch me deliver the soul of a lost man. Their hearts and minds had to be set right. You don't hear words from the disciples during this whole process with this man of legions. They're still taken by the storm. They're still taken by the question, what manner of man is this? I don't know about you, but when he lands, it says the man immediately met him. I like that, the sovereign power of God. The devil immediately is drawn to Christ, immediately. What would you have thought if you got off that boat and your mind is still overwhelmed by what Christ just did and you're, 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 you're exceedingly fearful and you're saying, what matter of man is this? And a man runs up who's got blood cut all over his clothes. He's got cuts all over his body. He's crying and screaming and he's raging and he's saying things that man can't understand. He's just all messed up. And Can you imagine what they thought when they seen him?
Oh, then I like how God, Christ sovereignly takes the conditions, takes the situation under control. And I like it how it says in verse 6, when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him. You think the winds and waves caused them to wonder who this man was? <laughs> who is this man that can produce this? This guy's a raging lunatic. What sight that must have been. Surely, again, his clothes were drenched in blood. Probably none at all. And he comes and falls down and worships Christ. Oh, beloved, we have, we have a most powerful God. He can do the impossible. And I believe with all my heart, like he did in John chapter 14 or 13, he tells them that one's going to betray him, one's going to deny him three times, you're all going to forsake me and go your own way. And after he sets their heart to that, and they're humbled by everything he said, in 14 verse 1 he says, but let not your heart be troubled. He had to set their hearts right that they might receive the comfort and encouragement of God. He had to set the disciples' hearts right before he met this man of the gatherings so that they can receive all what Christ was and is. Beloved, it is the most humble thing to be aware of the power and majesty and wonder of God. It's not the controlling of the waves and the winds which we should seek. In other words, we should not look that Christ get rid of our temporal problems. These are but light afflictions, the Bible says. Because there should be setting us our affections on things that are eternal, that are not seen. It's not those things we should be looking for. We should be looking for the greater wonders of God. The wonders of God working in the soul of a lost man or woman without Christ. Have you ever experienced such a thing? And I'll close with that. Have you ever experienced such a thing? Has God ever allowed you to be used by Him in calling His own unto Himself? What a miracle. What a gracious thing that is. The great preachers of the past were humbled by the fact that God would use them as instruments to draw His elect unto Himself. And yet there was no greater... George Whitfield said, I, I wish he had 10,000 lives. If he had 10,000 lives, they'd all preach Christ. God, give us a burden to take the gospel out into the world and not keep it in the confines of our church, but take it out into the world to a lost and dying world preaching the gospel that God would call, him, call his own unto himself and believe in the power of the gospel. Of Jesus Christ. That's what he'd want them to see. May God give us grace as we pray that God would send us out as laborers into the harvest. Amen. The harvest is full. It's full. Few are the laborers. May God give us grace. There's no greater work. There's no greater work. 
than to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. May God give us grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that, Lord, you'd help us, Father, to be inspired by your word, the events which took place before you came to this country of the Gadarenes. Father, that we would be able to see and understand and reflect upon your divine election, that you would... Father, reasons known only unto yourself, passed by others, and open up our eyes to your mercy, grace, and love. O oh Lord, may our hearts ever be in great adoration and praise for such unmerited mercy and grace. And Lord, then may we take that same gospel that you used to open up our eyes out to a lost and dying world and Lord, may we preach it with all our hearts and unto all every creature, knowing that it is the power of God and the salvation unto all those whom you have called and elected. Father, help us, we pray, that we might glorify your name in all things. Bless now, we pray, for we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.